And is that better? Oh, there we go. There we go. All right. <laughs> Good morning again. Welcome. So glad you are here with us this holiday weekend. I know many are traveling. This is West Michigan. So the, the West Michigan summer, some of you may be tuning in over the live stream, but man, what a privilege to be gathered together on a holiday weekend together with God's people to sing God's praises, to hear God's word preached, uh, just to be together. It's a, it's a sweet thing. And we are in uh, the midst of a summer series on First John. We are calling Joyful Assurance in Jesus. So hopefully there's some joy flowing out of this sermon series into your life. There are two verses I want to keep front and center as we go through this series. They are the bookends of the letter at the front and at the back of the letter. In First John 1, 4, John says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So he starts the letter wanting them, wanting their joy to be complete in Jesus. And then he closes the letter in 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so if you put those two things together, right, John is writing to complete his joy and the joy of his readers in their assurance of eternal life. He wants them to be so secure so confident, so stable in Jesus that they would be overflowing with joy. And I want that same thing for each person in the room this morning, and I want that for every person who is here uh, throughout the summer for this series, that your confidence in Jesus, your security in Jesus, your, your joy in Jesus would overflow, and that it would frankly be contagious to other people who see the stability that you have in Jesus, the joy you have in Jesus, the peace that you have in Jesus. As John is walking through this letter, he offers various marks of the authentic Christian life to strengthen readers' assurance. So, you know, he said, if you are living in this in such a way, you're going to have greater assurance of that salvation. Last week, we looked at walking in the light. Genuine Christians walk in the light, and when we don't, we're able to be honest about it because of Jesus' work on the cross and his ongoing intercession for us. And so Christians walk in the light because of Jesus and the freedom we have in him. This week, we're going to see that genuine Christians uh, love each other and don't love this fallen world. Genuine Christians love each other and don't love this uh, fallen world. And you think, oh, how hard could that be, right? I mean, Christians supposed to love each other. There you go. That's the, it's a pretty simple sermon, like end of story, just go love each other, right? Piece of cake, Right? You know, actually, it turns out, you know, believe it or not, that, that loving people can be hard. Loving people can be costly. In these churches, people have left and they haven't left quietly. We're going to see next week at 219 that these people have, they have left the church and they have left a massive hole in the church in the way that they have left, right? They left over theological issues, lifestyle choices, creating all kinds of relational chaos in the church. And so uh, the church is dealing with the fallout from all these people that have left and walked out, right? They, They love things that ended up pitting them against their brothers and sisters in Christ. And today we're seeing some of those 
trends, people leaving and people leaving loudly over theological issues, over cultural hot-button issues, and we see the relational fallout uh, from it. You might personally be feeling that tension this morning in some of your relationships with friends and families who are just the relational rifts because of the different fracture points in our contemporary culture today, be they politics or social issues or whatever, um, you might feel that tension, right? You might feel torn by it, by relationships and people that are moving in different directions, and, and your heart just breaks that, that friendships are being torn apart by issues that you don't think maybe are as central as people are holding them to be. You might be personally grieving the fallout from relationships that have been alienated because of whatever the the issue or the reason might be. John saw the first generation of deconstructing Christians, and he has so much wisdom to offer us today for navigating this particular cultural moment. So this morning, I want you to see really three things. I want to look at John's reminder that genuine Christians love each other. I want to look at John's pastoral encouragement to his readers, and finally, John's warning about loving the world. And my aim for this morning's sermon is that we would love each other well because of Jesus and wouldn't be distracted by the fleeting pleasures of this fallen world. So let's pray this morning that God would show up, not that God would show up, that that we would be show up to God. We would meet with him uh, this morning as he's here uh, and present with us by his spirit. And so, Father, uh, we need your help this morning uh, to love each other well, to be the kind of church that opens wide our arms to the community, to guests and visitors that are coming in to check out what you're doing, to people that are uh, lost and wandering around trying to find their place in the world. God, so would you make us this uh, kind of community? Would you make us a people that love each other well for Jesus' sake, that resist all of the fleeting temptations the world has to offer, God? And, and would you ground us, God? Would you anchor us in the truths of the gospel, your love for us, the grace that you offer? Uh, would you just make us a gracious, welcoming uh, community, overflowing with the joy that you bring? And we pray all of that in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. So the first thing I want to look at this morning is John's reminder that genuine Christians love each other. Right now, that may sound fairly basic and elementary, but let's unpack it a little bit. Let's dig in to this and see what John has to say here. Um, I want to open up here first in verse 7, just with John's greeting. Beloved is a very literal translation of the word that he's giving right there. If you have the NIV, it might say, dear friends, uh, something to that effect, because John absolutely loves these people that he is addressing, right? I mean, it's embarrassing. It's almost like he's gushing. Uh, Beloved, dear friends, uh, those who I love so much from the heart, and you might kind of be like, surely this guy can't be serious, right? To our jaded and cynical culture, some of these over-the-top expressions of love may feel a little bit, you're like, is this guy for real? Is he serious? But this is a man who has spent decades in gospel ministry pouring into the people that he's worked with. And, and that's why, as an old man, this is, this is the disciple Jesus loved, John, who, who reclined on Jesus, who experienced the love of Jesus for himself, and then spent the next decades of his life loving on the churches that God has put. He's the only disciple that made it all the way to the end of his life. All the rest were 
died through martyrdom. And, and here John is just pouring out his love on churches that he has loved for decades and people that he's poured his life into. I just want you to feel a little bit of his heart for the people. I hope you feel some of that this morning, uh, that you are loved by God and by your pastor as well uh, with that same kind of heart without maybe the decades included. Uh, But this is not simply a personal experience John wants to pass on. It is a specific commandment. As John tells these disciples, calls them beloved, he goes on to say, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, Jesus had already summed up all the commandments in the Old Testament as loving God and loving your neighbor. But here John seems to be referring not to the Old Testament commandments, um, but to the new commandment Jesus gave his followers, this commandment that they had heard from the beginning of their time following Jesus, right? John is constantly bringing his readers back to Jesus. In fact, he's redefining all of redemptive history around Jesus and the massive change that Jesus brought. Here he's referring to a specific commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples, John included, more than 60 years ago. And so in John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus, we hear these words out of Jesus' mouth, a new commandment. I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also ought to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What was an old commandment, right, to John's readers is the new commandment Jesus had given John and his disciples all those decades earlier. And apparently, right, the false teachers had flagrantly disregarded this commandment from Jesus. And so John has to remind them. We see this in verse 9 and in verse 11. John's like, hey, if you hate your brothers and sisters, right, if you're allowing this discord and conflict to fester in your heart, if you're allowing bitterness into your heart, you're not walking in the light. You're not truly part of this community. That's not what characterizes children of God. Children of God love like Jesus loved I think it's interesting for us to note here as a church that it's not simply the moral or doctrinal purity of the church that identifies us as genuine Christians. Right? As important as they are, Jesus said that everyone would know we are Christians by our love. Right? There should be a vibrant, healthy, relational culture in every true and authentic church. And that's something that John is going to unpack throughout the course of the letter. And this is his first effort to really lay that out for his readers, right? You can have all of your doctrine down. You can be morally upright in every single way. But man, if you don't love each other, man, you're just a cold and angry community, right? That is not going to communicate anything of the gospel. And we know morality is important, right? We saw it last week. We're called to walk in the light, right? And to disregard that is to live against the grain of the universe, to our own harm and to the harm of people around us, 
Um, but churches focused exclusively on morality, right? They can be hard places, very rigid and judgmental. Maybe you've been in a church like that, very moralistic, uh, all about behavior, getting it right. Man, that could be a cold and hard place to be. And theology is important. We'll see that next week, right? It is vitally important that we, what we believe about Jesus, if we deny the truth about him, um, right, we're representing the spirit of Antichrist. Like, that is serious. But churches exclusively focused on doctrine can be very proud, very critical, very, very rigid, very uptight, man, and can cut off relationships over even minor doctrinal or theological differences. So John spends a large portion of this letter talking about the relational culture of these churches, and we should too, right? We want to see a culture where we love each other, care for each other, take care of each other, where our relationships extend outside of our little hour and a half together on Sunday morning, that there is a rich and deep relational culture we're locking alongside of one another. I love how Francis Schaeffer put this a generation ago. He said this, he said, one cannot explain the dunamis or the the power of the early church apart from the fact that they practice two things simultaneously, orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church, a community which the world could see. By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Our churches have too often been preaching points with very little emphasis on community, Uh, But exhibition of the love of God in practice is beautiful and must be there. I I just love that, right? To think about as a church, we need more than to just get all our doctrine right and blow anybody up who disagrees with us, right? There has got to be a beautiful culture formed around the truths of Scripture in the way we walk that out and live that out. Uh, together. And we really want to be intentional about that here at Redemption City Church. I love our, our little greeting times that we do before the sermon. And man, everybody is just connecting and greeting and following up and, and loving on each other. And I, I love that as an expression of what our church is, right? But that's not enough either, just to shake hands and do a few greetings, right? We need to be in community throughout the weeks. And that's why we relaunched kind of communities again this year so that you can actually sit around the table with other brothers and sisters in Christ, build be able to care and love on people in ways that you're just going to miss on a Sunday morning when everybody comes all dressed up, looking great, looking polished, having all their stuff together, right? You get to be in people's lives and experience. And of course, those communities are really just training wheels, right, to building that kind of community where we just love on each other, where we check up on each other, where we care for each other, where we're texting each other throughout the week about how things are going, where we're dropping meals off at each other's house if somebody's sick or having a new baby and that kind of thing, where we're just in each other's lives naturally, right? That's the burden that John has for these churches, that they would love each other deeply and and from the heart, and that there'd be a beautiful, rich relational culture that would not only be a great assurance and help to believers, right, having people around them that love them, that encourage them, that keep pointing them to Jesus, but would be attractive also to outsiders as well as they see, man, look how these people love each other, right? They will know that they're Christians by love. That's supposed to be one of the divining marks of genuine Christians and a genuine community of believers. And boy, in the polarized, divisive times that we're living in, what could be more countercultural? What could be more dramatic than a community of people with lots of different beliefs and backgrounds and upbringings uh, to come together around Jesus and build this beautiful culture together? Now, John has been 
writing to distinguish here two groups of people, right? Uh, People walking in the darkness and people walking in the light last week. And then this week, people who hate their brothers and people who love their brothers, people who care about each other. But he breaks off here in 12 through 14 in order to offer some pastoral encouragement. Apparently, he thought his readers needed some encouragement. And so if you are deep into relationships and life together with other followers of Jesus, you may need a little encouragement this morning, right? Loving people well is hard. It's challenging. It comes with drama and difficulties. We're dealing with different personalities. We're dealing um, with different temperaments. We're dealing with different backgrounds and expectations and different ways people communicate and all of these things. And right, that can be difficult, much less in John's community, people that are literally just walking away from the faith, walking away from Jesus. And so he just unloads some serious encouragement to his readers. He just like pauses right here to just say, man, I I see you. I see the struggle that you're in. I see the work that you're doing to love each other. Well, I see how hard that is. I see how difficult that is. And and let me just give you as your pastor some encouragement uh, to move you forward in your faith. So notice what he says here in 12 through 14. Now, some commentators are like, this is one of the high points of the day, maybe the high point of the gospel. It's like this encouragement that John just wants to give to his readers. So I hope you hear this as like Pastor John just encouraging you uh, in the gospel. He says in verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Once again, notice, right, John's tenderness of address to his little children, right? This is how he addresses his readers throughout the letter, right? He's not being, you know, paternalistic or, you know, trying to, like, insult his readers. My kids were kind of like, who's he calling little kids? Like, that doesn't sound nice. This is an expression of his tenderness from a very old man, a father in the faith who loves these people. He addresses them that way throughout the letter. Um, And John has been using this address metaphorically throughout the letter, so it seems to make sense to use it that way here. So it's not just addressing the kids in the room, or I could walk downstairs to the, you know, 30 kids that are running around downstairs and address them. He's speaking to the body of Christ, the, the Christians, those little children that are under his spiritual uh, care. And uh, what he does, what does he want to remind his readers of here? Notice in verse 12, he reminds them that their sins have been forgiven for Jesus' sake, right? That's where he starts. Uh, I'm writing to you, Right, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his sake. If you are a Christian, you have walked out of the darkness into the light, and you have received God's forgiveness. Right? There is always a fresh start available for you. This is not only fundamental for each of us individually, but fundamental for the fellowship God has called us to. We need to be a community where forgiveness is not only available, but compellingly demonstrated on a daily basis. A community of forgiveness and reconciliation where we walk through our issues and our difficulties and the things that divide the tensions, the difficulties that swirl around us. Second, he reminds his little children in verse 13 that they know 
the Father. They know God personally, right? This doesn't mean they don't have doubts or sin or temptations or questions, but they know him. They've experienced his love and grace, his peace and his comfort and forgiveness. If you were a Christian, right, you know and have direct access to the most important person in the universe. You have that kind of direct access, and you also have direct access to a whole community of Jesus followers who are also in relationship to Jesus. And that should be stunning to us, right, to remember. And maybe the most obvious thing in the world, but it's at the heart of the Christian experience, right? Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus. Said, right? this, is, this is what every Christian has access to and experience of. It's what makes you a Christian. You know God. You have a personal, vital, life-giving, joy-inducing relationship with God. And so John addresses his little children, and then he addresses the fathers. These are the spiritual fathers in the room, those further along in their faith, mature Christians. And what does he say to them? It's interesting. He says the same thing twice to the fathers. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you because you know him who is from the beginning. The beginning. The main reason he repeats himself is because there is nothing greater than knowing God, right? Notice that he doesn't say, I'm writing to you fathers because you've gotten it all figured out. You've figured out all the theological puzzles in the universe or because you've finally sorted through all of your issues or, you know, gotten your, your, your moral conduct to a state of perfection. No, he says, for you that are fathers, and we could equally apply this to mothers in the faith, uh, the ultimate thing, the deepest thing uh, that you could do is walk with Jesus, have a relationship with Jesus, know God. There's nothing greater than that. There's nothing further along the line than that for the spiritual fathers in the faith, right? John wants to encourage them, right, that they know God. These seasoned saints have walked with God and their knowledge of him has deepened and matured through the ups and downs of life, right? And so they have an anchor for their souls. They have a North Star guiding them. They have a spiritual center that grounds them, right? This relationship with God is the center for their joy, right? And their peace, it's it is the anchor for their souls, right? And everything said of these spiritual fathers, again, could be said of our mothers in the faith. What makes a spiritual father or mother is the deep and abiding relationship with Jesus, and there is nothing greater than that. Finally, John addresses the young men, or you know, perhaps we could also apply this to the young ladies here. Um, these are the younger Christians who are in the busiest seasons of their life, very much the thick of the battle. Maybe some of you can identify. Starting life out, new careers, new marriage, new kids, trying to figure life out. You are in the thick of things. You are in the battle. You are in the busiest, most exhausting, draining seasons of your life. Some of you may be dozing off right now because you were up late with kids. You know, there is, uh, people were sick. You know, all of the challenges that are associated with living with lots of young humans and keeping them alive. Uh, what does he remind the young men of, those in this very busy, intense season of their life. So this is what he says in verse 13. I am writing to you, I love this, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. How's that for an encouragement? <laughs> I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome 
the evil. That's quite a statement, right? We sang earlier, right, that we're going to see the enemy fleeing from us or running from us. Like Here John's saying, you have overcome the evil one. And I would say you may not feel right now this morning, right, that you've overcome the evil one. You might not quite have that kind of confidence and assurance in your life. But John is telling you, if you are walking in the light, right, if you have received Jesus' forgiveness, If you are loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, you have overcome the evil one. You've already done it. You are walking in that victory Jesus has accomplished, right? Satan would love nothing more, right, than for you to stay in the darkness, to stay lost in your sins, to stay angry and cynical and jaded about all the people around you. But if you've walked out into the light, right, you've already walking in the victory Jesus has accomplished. He says uh, further on, in verse 14 here, uh, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one, the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So he amplifies it a little bit further here at the end of verse 14. Right? For John, it's interesting. He says the word of God abides in him. For John, the word is the word that was made flesh, the word of God. Revelation 9.13, the word is Jesus and also the apostolic words that testify to Jesus and who he is, right? John's readers have overcome because they are standing in the word made flesh, and they are trusting in the word of God as it's been written and as it's been passed down to us today. They overcome as God's word is living and active in their hearts. And again, you may not feel that way. You might have got, not have gotten a lot of sleep. You might have gotten into a fight with your spouse. You might be in a stressful season at work right now. But John wants you to know, right, that if you're a Christian, you have overcome the evil one. That, that's what has happened in your life. Perhaps a quick illustration might help. On our Redemption City uh, soccer squad, we have some really genuine talent, man. Let me tell you, Sebastian, Flavio, like Mike Birch, I mean, these guys are legends. Like, I mean, they scored, you know, three, four goals in a game, and, you know, the rest of us, we're just trotting around on the field going, yeah, go Sebastian, score another goal for us, you know, and but as members of that team, right, we are celebrating the victory. When we, went, we only lost two games all season, incredible run there too. But the reason we were able to overcome so frequently is because of the quality, the depth of some of our players. But those of us that just kind of trotted along and scored a goal or two all season, we also participated in that victory. We also were able to overcome. Maybe we weren't quite as talented. Maybe we didn't play in college. Maybe we didn't have quite the same level of skill, but we also were participating in that same victory. And that's what John wants us to say. You may not feel like an overcomer. You may not feel like the victory has been won. But as a Christian, you live in the victory that Jesus accomplished on that cross. His resurrection, he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. You know, Satan has been definitively defeated on the cross. He is still going to wreak havoc. He's still going to cause you to have doubts. and There's still going to be temptation in your life. Uh, But ultimately, he has triumph, and he wants the young men to understand as hard and challenging and difficult as it is to be in that busy season of life, right? To be grounded in their identity, reminded they have overcome because of Jesus. And so John is just gushing pastoral encouragement, just pouring into his people. It's like, I know it's hard loving each other well, living in uh, a community where there's dissension, there's difficulties in a culture where there's sharp disagreements. I know that's difficult. It's hard. Be encouraged. 
in the gospel. And then after this extensive encouragement, John returns to the subject of love, right? John opened this section of the letter with a reminder that genuine Christians love each other, and he closes this section of the letter with a strong warning about loving the world or not loving the world, right? So finally, I want to look at this final warning. It's just the last two verses, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, uh, the love of God is not, love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, in one sense, the Bible has lots of positive things to say about the world, right? God created the world. He cares deeply about the world. If you read Genesis 1 and 2, you see just God's joy in everything he's done. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was very good, actually, the world he created, right? The world is charged, we could say, with the poets, with the grandeur and the glory and the majesty of God. The psalmist, you know, love to say the heavens declare the glory of God. In John 3.16, we read that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God, God loves the world, and all the people in the world wants them to come to a relationship with himself. Uh, we saw in this letter, John says in 1 John 2.2, 2, Jesus is the propitiation for not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. So, so in one sense, John is saying there, there are positive things we can say about this world, but there's another sense in which the New Testament writers use the term world. And that's what he's doing here, right? Sometimes the New Testament writers are addressing the fallen world in which we live, a world that is in active rebellion against God, a world which John says in 1 John 5, 19, is under the power of the evil one, right? So two different ways the New Testament writers use this same word, world, right? And so John is warning about the temptations of life in this fallen and fleeting world, not the good world that God created, not the good things God created, but the way those things can be twisted by our own selfish motives, by the enemy that would like nothing more than to steal and kill and destroy. Um, That's the world system he's talking about. And he mentions three temptations to love the world, right? Three things that might captivate us, that might get us off track from our main mission, right, of loving each other and loving God as he's called us to love. The first is the desires of the flesh, right? Our appetites, our impulses, our lusts, those, those parts that are more uh, affiliated with our animal nature, right? The things that we just want to do. We want certain things, and those things well up within our hearts, and they war with us, and they wage war against us. And he's saying, don't give in to those things. Uh, don't give in, secondly, to the desires of the eyes, right? We have before us, particularly in our culture, right? We have so many options, so many shining, beautiful things, right? We have marketers who spend their entire lives just selling us all of the wonderful things that will make us happy, rich, successful, uh, good-looking, you know, whatever the case may be. There's so much out there in the world, just all of the temptations that we could see around us that marketers are constantly bombarding with us, these desires that we have the temptations that are in our own hearts, and then we're bombarded by all these temptations around us. And more than ever, on our phones, TV screens, everywhere, we are constantly being bombarded. John said, don't get distracted. Don't lose track. And then finally, the pride of life. And this word life here is, is life not in its eternal context, not like eternal life, but life in its earthly dimension. All of the things that, that consist of life here, all the possessions that we own, uh, the positions we hold, 
um, all of the accolades we might get, um, all of the status and those sorts of symbols. He's saying, don't live for that. Don't live for the pride of life, what you can accomplish here in this age. And uh, really, John is talking about the age-old temptation, right, that snared Adam and Eve in the garden. It's the same thing, right? If you read in Genesis 3, 6, right, when the woman saw the tree was good for food, right? There's that desires of the flesh, right? That impulse is there. It was a delight to the eyes. Again, this temptation to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, right? We're, we're tempted by the very same things. Adam and Eve in the garden, these desires wage war with us, and this is the same age-old temptation Jesus overcame in the wilderness. And we stand in his victory, right? John calls us to refuse to be distracted. Jesus triumphed over all of those temptations, right? And as we find our new identity in him, our strength in him, right, the love that we need in him, as we're drawing all of those things from Jesus as the vine from its branches, we, we're sustained in the faith. We are able to grow. Now, pastors are often tempted to get on our hobby horse about all the particular sins of the age, and there are many, right, that we could go off and on about. But here John stays at a higher level, right? He, he warns about anything that would distract us from loving God and their brothers and sisters. He's focused, right, on very specific uh, but very, gen- very broad categories. And so this morning, be thinking for yourself, what are some of those distractions for you could be in any number of directions. And John leaves it broad enough for us to think and see where the Holy Spirit might maybe put a little, uh, little, little um, conviction in our hearts around those distractions. And then John goes on to tell his readers, this is interesting, in verse 8, the darkness is passing away. And in verse 17 here, he picks up this theme again, saying, this fallen world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever, right? The fleeting possessions that we acquire here have an expiration date, if not planned obsolescence by their makers, but fellowship with God and his people is forever. The investments that you're making in the people around us, look around to your light and your left, the, the people that you are investing in, they are eternal, <laughs> eternal investments in relationships that are go on forever. And so many of the things that grab our attention and time and focus don't quite live up to that value. And this is where, you know, you could, if you, from time to time, it's helpful to do a, an audit of how you're spending your time and right, how you're spending your money. Or am I investing in my relationship with God and other people? Or are these possessions that I have starting to like be distracting, right? Are we, are we chasing fleeting pleasures or investing in eternal things? Are we, in tri- are we prioritizing riches over relationships, right? Are we prioritizing possessions over people? These are all good questions for us to be Uh, thinking about. So we've been reminded that we're supposed to love each other. Uh, We've been encouraged that we've been forgiven, that we know God, that we have overcome the evil one, and finally warned about the distractions of this fleeting and fallen world. I wanted to close with a letter from uh, Jonathan Edwards, one of the early presidents of Princeton College and one of America's greatest theologians. He sent this note uh, to his daughter Lucy on his deathbed, and I thought it was a beautiful testimony to the enduring nature of Christian relationships. There's something about deathbed testimonies, right, that just bring a clarity to our sight, and I thought this was beautiful. He said, Dear Lucy, it seems to me, seems to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you, 
Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature that I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And I hope that she will be supported under so great a trial and submit cheerfully to the will of God. And as to my children, you are now to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you uh, all to seek a father who will never fail you. Man, I want to have that kind of confidence on my deathbed that the that with my spouse that I've invested the last however many years and decades with, I could say, man, this relationship is such a beautiful character and quality. It's going to go on to other, but I think we can extend that to the people around you, the relationships you're building into, uh, the people you're walking alongside of community, right? These are relationships that are going to go on forever. And so these are the things that we're supposed to be investing in most significantly, right? There are so many fleeting pleasures of the world to chase after, but ultimately John wants to bring us uh, to, I think, a beautiful focus on this beautiful community that Jesus has started and we get to be a part of right here in Grand Rapids, and there are beautiful expressions of all around the world. So let me pray here that we would maybe reflect more of that community and that we would experience more of the joy and the assurance that comes from walking alongside the faith with other brothers and sisters in Christ who love us and can point us to Jesus. So Father, we thank you for uh, just the encouragement of uh, this beautiful text to just love each other well, to be a community that cares for each other, that follows up with each other, I pray that even today, uh, God, you may be putting uh, somebody in our mind that we need to text or follow up with or pray that we haven't seen in a little while or is struggling or we know could use our prayers. Uh, God, would you make us more of a community, right, that loves and cares for each other, that our, that our community, that our love would extend beyond just uh, uh, some time together on Sunday morning, but uh, more deeply into a community that truly loves and cares for each other. Um, as we gather around this table, God, would we just drink deeply of the encouragements of the gospel? Would we be reminded of the forgiveness of sins that we have here at this table, the fresh start we get this morning? Would we be reminded of the relationship we have with God because of Jesus and all that he's done? And would this table remind us that he has overcome, uh, God, and we stand in his victory uh, this morning, God. So would you minister to our hearts, encourage us in all the ways we need encouragement, ways we need to be challenged, uh, the ways we need uh, your help this morning. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So here at Redemption,